Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gehon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for drawing us into these spaces here this morning, and we pray that we would hear from you. Give us your Holy Spirit, Father, to illumine this, the very word of God to us, and bring us into contact with the living Lord Jesus, crucified and resurrected for us. Would Jesus truly be good news as we are drawn into him and pressed into what you have for us? in this world. Father, meet us in our faith and our doubt. Meet us in our success and failure. Meet us in our joy and our pain. Uh, We pray even now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So maybe this was backwards, but it's the way that the sermon texts fell out as I was planning the fall. Last week was the good news. This week is the bad news. So last week here at Liberty Collingswood, we were talking about rest and Sabbath. That's the good news. This week, we're talking about work, which is less good news, I realize, but that's where we're going here. Work. Can't live with it. Can't live without it. But we should talk about work, because work is kind of a big deal and a big thing. We spend a lot of our time doing stuff related to work, and students here in the room are watching online When I talk about work here, maybe you can think about studying or school, which is kind of your job right now, right? But so much pain and struggle comes from work, comes from our jobs. Struggle at our job. Struggle juggling jobs. Struggle finding a job. Struggle trying to figure out what kind of job to do. We get stressed out. 
A few years ago now, there was a woman in Australia named Bonnie Ware. She was a hospice care nurse. And eventually, as she spent a lot of time with people that were dying, she eventually wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Guess what it's about? It's not a cookbook, but it's about the top five regrets that she heard dying men and women talk to her about over the years on their deathbed. And number two is, I spent too much time working. This is what she wrote. The second most common regret was, I wish I didn't work so hard. And for whatever it's worth, it was the overwhelming majority of women in that condition that said that, and unanimously, all of the men. This came from every male patient that I nursed. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. We wish we worked less hard, but then we also kind of have no choice. We've, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. And at this point in the sermon, I was going to give you some statistics about how job satisfaction is plummeting for a lot of people in a lot of professions. I decided not to because it's too depressing. But isn't it sort of true? Are you satisfied with whatever jobs you have right now? I would say for most of us in the room and watching online, the answer is somewhere between okay at best and then worse. We're kind of struggling. And I do hear across a lot of different professions that whatever profession you're doing, it's gotten harder over the years. Everything from teachers to nurses and doctors to electricians. This is the sort of thing that I'll hear. It's harder. Teaching used to be about teaching, getting kids to learn. Nursing and being a doctor used to be just about trying to get patients to feel better. Electrician used to be about wiring. But there's so many more layers now, right? The bureaucracy, the red tape, the emails, the meetings, the credentialing, the liability, the wondering, hey, if I just have one bad day in the office, am I going to be strung up in the court of public opinion where consumer reviews about me are going to go way down? And so much of my job now involves things that used to be not part of my job. But here we are. Here I am. And so we want run to the polls where we will be either completely over-invested in our jobs or under-invested in our jobs, and neither one is healthy. Over-invested in our work and our jobs, when my entire sense of self-worth and identity is bound up in my job. If I do a great job, I'm feeling okay, but I'm a little nervous because maybe tomorrow I'm not going to do a great job. If I get a bad report, if a patient doesn't like me, if a student doesn't have the success that I want this student to have, then my world is shattered or underinvested in our job. I just don't care. I hate it. I'm not going to do it. Or at least I'm not going to do it well. Those are the polls that we run to. And this is a new sermon. I haven't preached it before. But if I had gone back and looked at some old sermons that I had preached on work, it wouldn't have contained this part here because now the dynamics within the labor force are radically shifting. Pandemic is accelerating a lot of these things, but they've already been afoot. The great resignation is upon us. Maybe recently or you're planning on quitting your job, on resigning. This just doesn't fit me anymore. And it's not only quantitatively that a lot more people are resigning right now from their jobs. The qualitative difference here, too, 
is that for the first time in large numbers, people are resigning or quitting jobs without having something else lined up. It's not, okay, I'm working here on the side, I've been doing some interviews, this thing is waiting for me over here, so I'm going to stop work here and then go over there. It's just, no, I'm going to stop work. I don't know what's next, but I know that I don't want to be doing this. The great resignation. And it's also been observed, especially earlier in the pandemic before vaccines, for a lot of low-wage earners, you were called essential workers, but you actually kind of felt not essential, but expendable. Where you're working jobs, where your boss tells you, hey, if you don't come in, even though there are significant health risks involved, we're going to fire you, we're going to let somebody go. That did not feel great to a ton of different people. And then also, work at home is much more of a thing. I was with a group of pastors on Thursday morning, and this pastor said, my church is full of people now that do kind of work. For those of you that have been working at home, have you been in the situation of doing kind of work, where maybe you're technically logging hours, but maybe it's kids or neighbor or yard or this or that that's crowding out your ability actually to do work when you're supposed to be doing work? And there's even more. Chances are now here in the 21st century, you will switch employers a lot more than people did, say, in the 20th century. And chances are, too, you're probably going to switch careers a lot more frequently also. And the gig economy is now upon us, where we gain in flexibility by maybe having more than one job, maybe three-quarters time here, part-time here, side hustle over there. What we gain in flexibility, we lo- I'm not saying it's bad or getting worse here, but what we gain in flexibility, we lose in steady and reliable income. And then here's a common thread throughout different ages. When it comes to work and labor, there always seems to be oppression and exploitation at the bottom and injustice. That's just how it works. I've been reading articles recently, maybe you've seen them too, about the fast fashion industry and the human and environmental toll that places like Zara take on our entire world. also read an article recently about reverse logistics. So logistics are what gets you your package from Amazon Prime or whatever shipping service or, or business you use. But as all of these companies have scrambled to be as efficient as possible getting you stuff, they've also scrambled to make it as easy as possible for you to be able to return by post whatever you want, whenever you want, but it's a mess on the back end, and there are human and environmental tolls regarding how do we get that stuff back, who takes care of it, and where does it go. It's a mess. So we're going to talk here this morning for a few more minutes about work and labor and the Christian story, the biblical narrative, what it has to say about such things. And even if you're somebody who's skeptical of spiritual realities among us here this morning, thank you for being here. Would you be open yet to what the Bible has to say about work? Because we need help. And for everybody, for everybody, what if we would actually be able to say about our jobs, not awesome, but okay. Actually doing pretty well, all things considered. And I'm finding God's redemptive threads in the midst of it. So three parts for the sermon the rest of the way here. We're going to talk about work and labor from the perspective of creation, the creation horizon. 
Then we're going to talk about how the fall problematizes work. So creation horizon with work, then the fallen and redemptive horizon. We're going to explain what those things mean. And then some tips for today. So work, according to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation horizon, creation here is continuing. Now, I wouldn't blame you if you would say, hey, wait a second, Jim, you dirty liar. Because he said last week, that creation was ending, and that last week concluded the symphony of creation. But now you're saying there's more. What happened? Well, for millennia, both Jewish and Christian scholars have noticed that as you go at the beginning of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, it looks like there may be two creation stories, or a doubling of the creation story one way or another. And in my opinion, some of the more shrill voices throughout the ages have said, well, this is proof that we can't trust the Bible These are two made-up stories about creation, and a very awkward copy and paste has occurred here at the beginning of the scriptures. But, in my opinion, more mature and nuanced voices have said that they complement each other really well. And as we transition from the creation story in Genesis 1, here into Genesis chapter 2, think of it as a zooming in, where the camera zooms in from universal history to human history from universal cosmic history of all things to a more personal scale. So here in verse 4 of our text, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. This is a formula in the book of Genesis, first time, but used multiple times after this. These are the generations, and here is the human story being told of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Heavens and earth? Earth and heavens, here's a switched around perspective talking about some of these same things. And scholars have said, think about what's upcoming here in Genesis chapter 2 as a double click on the original days 3 and 6 of creation when plants and vegetation and humanity was created. The scale is smaller here. We find in verse 8 a garden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. You may not have noticed if you were going through Genesis chapter, chapter 1 here with us at Liberty Collingswood, Garden of Eden is not in Genesis 1. We haven't encountered it yet. But here it is. God has given us a garden, and the vocabulary is different. So, for example, beginning of verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. The words for this kind of vegetation are different from the words for the vegetation that we found earlier in Genesis chapter 1. There, it's the wild plants, the big redwoods. Here we have the shrubberies and the more domesticated plants for human beings, or the beginning of verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the fruit trees. And here in this part of the creation story, our God, the living Lord, is being spotlighted as a worker, as a laborer. Here in these verses, we encounter God both as a potter and also as a planter. The Lord God as a potter, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That word for formed is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible for potters when you have a potter's wheel and you are making things with your hands. God has formed us. And so between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, human beings, we receive the image of God, Genesis 1, and the breath of God, Genesis 2. 
For all of the living creatures in the face of the earth, it's only the human beings that are given God's very breath. So we are created by the word of God. Let us make man, let us make humanity in our own image. Genesis chapter 1. And the work of God here with God as a laborer, forming human beings from the dust. So God as a potter, and then also God as a planter. Again, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. We'll talk about tree of life and then also this one, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in upcoming weeks. But God has planted all of this stuff. And not only is God the quintessential, the paragon worker or laborer, we're called to reflect that. There's a really fun question and answer going on in this text right here. When no bush of the field, verse 5, was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Human beings had not been put here yet to labor. But then by the end of the passage, and this is why I added verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. As human beings, we are called to reflect the God that works, to reflect the God that labors. And in other creation stories in the ancient Near East, there are other paradises, but the interesting difference with the biblical account here is with those other paradises, it's only pleasure all the time. It's Carnival Cruise Line. It's Disney without the lines. It's just fun, 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 no matter what, forever. But here in the Garden of Eden, in our first place, there is rest. We talked about that last week. We need to rest well, even today. But then also, we need to get to work. That's different. And so from this horizon, this narrative arc of God's creation story, work is good. It's what we were made to do. So whether in your job or in the home or in between, as those lines can be blurred in crazy ways, get to work. Treat it like your garden. Again, at the end of the passage, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. That, that, that's a pottery image again. That, that's also a gardening image. And then keep it, that's a shepherding image. Tend, bless, work. Pot, plant, keep, guard, steward, cause to flourish everything that God has given and entrusted to you. That includes secular jobs. The vast majority of people here at Liberty Collingswood, we have secular jobs, not all pastors, and that's a good thing. But in your secular job, that's where Eric Mitchell a couple weeks ago was talking about the cultural mandate. You fulfill God's calling in everything that you're doing. Work is good. So if you're one of those people that says, I don't like work. It's stupid. Why do I have to do that? You are out of alignment with God's charter for labor that we see in the creation horizon. But there is a difference or an additional layer. Because of the fall, and we're going to talk about the fall and redemptive horizons here, work is actually really, really hard. 
But we also have an explanation for that here in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil will not stay pristine for long. Adam and Eve are going to eat from that fruit, and there's a curse, there's a punishment for human beings that comes after that. And intriguingly, one of the main curses that comes to our world after that fall means that work gets harder from Genesis chapter 3. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. King James Version, the old version, has by the sweat of your brow. If that phrase rings a bell, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so for skeptics, are people still trying to figure out where you are spiritually? Might there yet be some resonance here where in your own experience you say, I feel these things, it's good for me to work. It's good for me to have a job. It's good for me to have things to do. And yet it's really, really hard. One of the things that made me a Christian and keeps me a Christian is that the scriptural story gives me categories by which I find an order to my own experiences. And when you look around the world, work is good, but work is hard. Bruce Springsteen is a singer-songwriter from New Jersey, and one of the main things throughout all of his catalog of writing, there are a lot of reflections on work. And sometimes in Bruce's songs, it's all about how great work is. It sets us free. But then other times, work is a problem and there's injustice and toil all woven into it. And in fact, the author of this sermon said, why don't we go ahead and put a Bruce Springsteen song quoted in the reflections of our worship folder. So go ahead and turn there. 1978 Bruce album, Darkness on the Edge of Town. There's a song called Factory. Bruce's dad bounced around between different factory jobs. And we have both horizons here in this one song of work is good and work is really hard. Bruce Springsteen, Factory. It's just a three-verse song. And then there's no real chorus, but the last line of each verse is repeated. The working, the working, just the working life. It's not a bad song. In the middle of the second verse, though, Bruce, with his dad on his mind, he said speaks about a worker, factory takes his hearing, factory gives him life. And Bruce's dad became functionally deaf from working in a factory without having proper hearing protection. That's the fallen horizon, first in this case. The factory takes his hearing, it messes you up, work, but factory gives him life. That's the, wait a second, but work is is, is good. It, It gives us a sense of meaning and purpose to be able to have jobs and things to do. But then for the rest of the song, Factory, it leans into the fallen direction. End of the day, factory whistle cries. Men walk through these gates with death in their eyes, being dehumanized by their work. And you just better believe, boy, somebody's going to get hurt tonight. It's the working, the working, just the working life. A man brutalized by his labor punches down at home. Or Karl Marx. I'm not a Marxist, but one of the brilliant innovations that Karl Marx gave to the Western conversation philosophically is that he said, you've been thinking about it wrong. This is the 19th century philosopher. You know, you think that that history is driven by ideas and the mind and all these big concepts that you can have? It's driven by our labor. 
you're thinking about life exactly backwards. And one of the ironies for me with Karl Marx is he was a no friend of religion, no friend to Christianity, but it's actually the Judeo-Christian story that spends a lot of time thinking about work. It's the Greco-Roman worldview that's all about the mind and the mind only. We, we, we don't have anything to do with our bodies a lot of the time. But if you look into the scriptures... Human beings and human communities, there's this balance where, of course, minds are important and hearts are important, but also hands. And so the Bible gives us some categories for this experience, whether Karl Marx or Bruce Springsteen. Thanks, boss. But there are different ways in which work can be hard. It's toil. It can feel inefficient and ineffective. Our work, our jobs can feel meaningless or boring or unsatisfying. Or maybe you feel that there's oppression and injustice woven in. And isn't it true that as we run to the polls, our jobs so often for us will bounce between idle and evil. Idle, the overinvestment. All I am is what I do. It's, it's my idol. I go to my job and what I do, that's, that, that's what I'm woven into, and if that's stressed in any way, I'm shattered. And you can idolize other people's works. There is a woman at our first church, a friend of ours, for Emily and me, she would complain that her mom would always introduce her as, oh, have you met my daughter, Dr. So-and-so? And she would also say where she graduated from, Dr. So-and-so, graduate of this prestigious institution and, and that one. And so our friend said, for my mom, my job was an idol for her. So idle on one hand or just evil on the other. Work is horrible. I'm not going to get anything out of it. I just hate it. Where are you in bouncing between those different poles? But it makes sense that we struggle with this fallen horizon while at the same time we recognize that that's not all. There's more. God is at work to redeem all things in Jesus Christ. And so we are able to work in a world where redemption is real because the rivers that we encounter here in Genesis chapter 2 flow forward throughout history. There are these rivers, four rivers, flowing through the Garden of Eden, and that's an image that you find at various points throughout the scriptures. So you find rivers and visions of the end of time and God's restoration of all things, for example. At the end of the book of Ezekiel, there's a, a river flowing through God's temple world. Or the ancient prophet Zechariah, there's a river at the end. And it's no coincidence that Jesus calls himself in his earthly ministry, according to the Gospel of John, I am the living water. If you believe in me, out of you will flow streams of living water flowing forward, upward to God, and forward to new creation. And what do we find in the very last chapter of all of the Bible? The river of life. Revelation 22 where this vision of God's restoration goes like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, God's garden city, the new heavens and new earth. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God. And the end of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, and there will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever.
the river's coming. And also, if you caught in that passage from Revelation, also there's the tree of life again for the healing of the nations, for the restoration of all things forever. And this reality is open to us, this river of the water of life, this tree of life, because Jesus of Nazareth all those years ago was hung on a tree of death where he was not crucified on a living tree, but dead wood. Where there he paid the penalty for our sin. Where Jesus' job that he took voluntarily was the hardest job that anybody could ever undertake. I will die for the sins of the people of God. And in my rising, I will conquer sin and death and the devil so that anyone, anywhere, regardless of their jobs or anything else that comes to me by faith, would know my forgiveness and my redemption and my renewal of all things. It's yours. I have worked, I have paid to give it to you for free. And so as renewed people, we are able to walk through the fallenness around us, even in the midst of fallen job situations. You need Jesus for your work. It frees us from the idle, evil, pinballing back and forth. If work is our God, it's just going to take from us and dehumanize us, either by making us prideful because our job and our work is so much more successful and easier than everybody else, or the opposite. And also it brings us back from work is just terrible and it's irredeemable because Jesus is redeeming all things. And it's Jesus also that gives you Sabbath in the midst of your work, both now and forever. And we'll wrap up with just a couple of pro tips I don't know if pro tips is the right, I'm not, well, I'm I'm a professional pastor, so the words of a professional here. This is what I've got for you. Think of it, and our music team this morning is awesome. It took some mixing to get all of those instruments to sound good together. Matt on the soundboard is doing a great job. Think of your job as like an ensemble where you have to mix the different sounds, turn some up or turn some back to make it sound good all together. So in any job, there are different dials or different things where work can mean different things at different times. Maybe your job is one in which you can pursue excellence and beauty, whether it's a spreadsheet or a sculpture. There are ugly spreadsheets. I'm not sure I'd recognize the difference myself. That's not my wiring. But there are better or worse spreadsheets. If you're a spreadsheet person, make it excellent. Make it beautiful. Or likewise for sculpture. Or also in our jobs, maybe jobs that you're in contribute for the common good, the shalom, the peace of all things. Or maybe your job enables you to be a servant to those around you when it's all about servanthood. Or maybe your job is a situation where you can witness to Jesus a lot if you're a follower of Jesus already. Or maybe your job is all about justice. But whatever it is between those different things, and this is in the work or in the home or at school, chances are all of those things aren't going to be turned up to 11. But whatever your job enables you to do well Turn those knobs up. So maybe your job doesn't have a whole lot to do with excellence and beauty, but it's serving the common good. It's serving shalom. Maybe your job is serving shalom in a, in a general way, but then maybe it's not, but then maybe you're able to say, well, this is kind of indifferent to common good, but at least in my job, I can make by my job other people's jobs a little bit easier. 
Or maybe passively or actively, you can be a witness for Jesus. Maybe it's a toxic work environment, and you're simply being a non-anxious presence, a person of peace there. You can be one of those people that says, I wish you were in the room last week because it was really hard. The type of coworker, when you walk into the lounge or walk into work, everybody's glad that you're there. Or maybe it's verbally witnessing to Jesus and so on. You will be more satisfied in your job if you're able to turn up whatever dials you have available to say, this job is not all things to me, but here are some good aspects. And working and laboring under Jesus frees you from different cultural captivities when it comes to work as we balance between creation and fall and redemption. Keep the creation horizon in view. All work is good, or you may fall into the trap of saying some jobs are better than others. Maybe you might think, well, the quote-unquote white-collar jobs are much better than the blue-collar jobs. I was talking along those lines in high school at one point, and I was talking to my dad, who was an engineer, and before that he was a rocket scientist, and it was a semester when I was getting good grades, and I was like, Dad, aren't we awesome? Don't we contribute so much more, and won't I contribute so much, little did I know that I'd be a pastor, to the economy than, than all of those other jobs and all of those other people? My dad said, Jim, that's elitism. And my dad grew up on a farm, as many of you know, in western Pennsylvania, he said, don't you dare think that the people that were rocket scientists with me at Boeing worked any harder or were any smarter than these farmers. You try to figure out how to mend defense without nails. You try to figure out, and these were dairy farmers, how to heal a sick cow without a doctor or without a vet. You figure out how to feed and keep a herd of cattle when there's no feed because maybe it was way too hot or way too cold, way too rainy or not rainy enough this year, and you can't afford any more feed, but you've got to figure out what to do with the cattle. Keeping the creation horizon in mind says that all work is good. And no offense, say, to bankers or lawyers or doctors in the room, but God's a potter and a planter here in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus was a carpenter. These professions are noble and good, as they all are. Or keep the fallen horizon in view. Hope I'm not bursting any bubbles. There is no such thing as a dream job. There is no such thing as a dream job. And if that's your goal, I'm unhappy now because I don't have my dream job yet. Have fun chasing unicorns. They don't really exist. And if you think there's a dream job out there somewhere for me, you forget the fallen horizon when work is hard. Or if your job is all about you and maximizing your status and your success and your attainment and your entertainment and your money, don't forget Jesus' redemptive horizon for you. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Whatever resources you accrue in your job, pay it forward for other people. And don't just keep it all to yourself. And remember grace. And grace means that even for the jobs that really are pretty rough, again, whether at work or a phase of life at home or at school, in Jesus they are not ultimately lost because Jesus, the shepherd, has died for you, has got you, says that our work will last and that there is a new heavens and new earth coming where one day we can rest. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.